It's my privilege today to wrap up this series that I feel like really had God's hand on it, hasn't it? From the first week, we opened up this subject of seeing what Scripture has to say about work. Workplace theology, a fancy word for it. Uh, it's been clear that God directed us into this. Lots of you have shared about it. I, I've enjoyed everything that's been shared from this pulpit by the other teachers, and I've especially appreciated and benefited from the testimonies. It's been a great part of this, and so thankful for everyone that shared with it. Today, we wrap up by taking a look at work from the lens of eternity. Work and eternity, because your work not only matters to God now, but in some sense, the work you do now echoes into eternity. That's part of how we've learned, how we go about it, how we embrace it as part of our calling and who we are, and uh, renewing, entering into work the way God had intended it originally, now having been redeemed children of God. And so we're going to look at it that way. Uh, we're going to spend a fair amount of time looking down the future and understanding what's in front of us so that we can then back up and say, how does that impact how we work now? I thought a good place to start would be in the third chapter of Colossians. It was a verse we used the second week. And I think this is certainly one verse in Scripture that summarizes in some way how we ought to approach all of our work here on earth, whether it's paid or, or not, all of our work here on earth. It's one passage where we know for a fact that the language uh, of work uh, Paul's talking about is your work, your, your jobs, your, your labor. Let's say it one more time together. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. If, if that shift alone is what has occurred and will continue to occur in your thinking about your work and your career, is that no matter who your earthly manager or supervisor or go-to or answerable person is, you do your work as for the Lord. He really is your boss. He's your master, and that ought to impact how you go about doing it, uh, even when nobody's looking, because he certainly is. He's always looking, and that's why integrity, even in our work, is what we do when nobody else sees us, right? I've, I've intentionally underlined that part, that there's a motivation that Paul brings out here about the reward that awaits for us when this life is over, you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. So no matter how good your retirement plan is or whether you don't have it at all, no matter how many accolades you get or promotions or, or whether that's even part of, of your work, all of those things are secondary as a Christian to the fact that someday working for Christ as though we are laboring for him directly, we can count on the fact that there will be a reward in the future, in, in eternity. And it's worth reminding ourselves that eternity is a very, very long time. It matters a lot. Um, even in Scripture, the writers have a hard time trying to use human language to capture the idea of eternity. Because our language is, is finite, like our, our experience in life. Here's a good example. It's Revelations chapter 11, 
Uh, John, uh, receiving this vision, hears this coming from the throne of God. Let's say this together. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Messiah, and He shall reign forever and ever. You thought Handel wrote that, didn't you? You didn't. The Bible wrote it. Handel just put it to music. And the phrase I want you to, this is a picture of the eternal state once Christ returns and establishes his throne. And then the, the writer tries to say just how long it's going to happen. And he uses this phrase forever and ever. Now, now just look at that. Look at that phrase. Forever and ever. How do you, how do you amplify the word forever? It's sort of like Buzz Lightyear. To infinity. And beyond. What's beyond infinity? What, how can, what's ever beyond forever? Forever is forever. It, it's hard to try to capture what forever really means. The Greek word that is actually said twice there, ever and ever, is the Greek word aion. Can any of you think of an English word that might come from that? Eon. Eon. So one way to translate it is, and he will reign for eons upon eons. Now astronomers use the word eon to describe an epic, uh, an epoch of a billion years. So another way to say it is, when Christ returns and establishes his throne and we are with him, he will reign for billions upon billions of years. And here's the problem. How do we even get our mind around that? We may as well, okay, let's just go with Buzz Lightyear. He will reign to infinity and beyond. You just can't begin to fathom it, but it's worth wrestling with it so we understand why Scripture calls this life that you lead on earth a vapor. A vapor. There's lots of illustrations that have been used to try to help us understand just how full eternity is and how brief our life on earth is by comparison. But my current favorite was the one uh, Paul Joyle used uh, a month or two ago in a sermon where he showed a picture of a beach. Do you remember that? Well, I, I, I'm one-upping it. I'm showing a picture of the Sahara Desert. I did a little research. Did you know that 20% of the earth's uh, land mass is sand? 20%. That's bigger than the North American continent. North American continent represents 16% of landmass of the earth. Contrary to the pictures that we've been shown in our schools that show Africa as smaller, <laughs> because, you know, we're, we're the bigwigs, evidently, on planet earth. That's what we think. So we, we actually show the maps to look like North America is huge by comparison, but Africa is 20% of the landmass of the earth. So roughly the continent of Africa represents the sand that is on the planet earth. So now imagine yourself standing in the continent of Africa instead as just sand, just like that. Miles and miles, tens of thousands of square miles of sand. And then imagine yourself holding a single grain of sand in your hand. The desert is eternity. That grain is your life here on earth. And here's the problem. Even that falls short. 
Even that doesn't help us understand what eternity is. But if we are going to fulfill our lives here on earth, even in our work, we have to have a lens on forever and ever. We have to keep focusing and understand that. And so that's what we're going to look at. And we're going to take a glimpse at what awaits us in our forever and ever. The first series, the first sermon in the series, we were in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. So how appropriate is it that we end the series by going to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and almost the very end, it's Revelation chapter 21, it's page 878 in your pew Bibles. I would love for you to turn there with me. You're going to want to read this as John paints a picture for us of what awaits in the forever and ever that you and I are going to be a part of as God's children. Now, if you have never really done a lot of studying about what awaits in the future, what God's ultimate plan is, or if you're reasonably new to Christianity, you may assume that what we think is in front of us is a disembodied existence in some realm known as heaven. And in fact, I believe that the Bible says that right now for Christians to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I believe those that our loved ones are with the Lord now. But that is not what the Bible says awaits us in the forever and ever. Frankly, if it was, I, I wouldn't think that would be much, that wouldn't be heaven at all. Who wants to be disembodied, floating on some ethereal existence, having church 24-7? That, that sounds more like hell to me. I like church, but it has to have a place. We've learned that we were created to do something. We were created for meaningful work, and believe it or not, that's part of our forever and ever. Let's read it together. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's, this is really important, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And He who was seated on the throne, that's Jesus, said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Jesus Christ gives testimony, and you can count on it as trustworthy and true. What awaits for us in the forever and ever is a new heaven and a new earth. Your future home is a restored earth. Instead of us going to be with God, God comes down to dwell with us. In his holy city, this has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And here he will reign forever and ever. Your future is a new earth. Living the life that God intended you when he made this earth. 
living the life that he intended in Genesis 1. But here's the thing. Genesis 1, the tree of life, which by the way is mentioned in the next chapter as part of this new Jerusalem, the tree of life was in a garden. When God makes all things new, the tree of life is in a city. You see, that's symbolic of what our what God's initial intent was for our work. The garden represents the potential. All that God did was beautiful, but He doesn't want to just go back to the beginning. He wants to fulfill His original purpose. His original purpose was for us to work, to work with Him, to develop, to to take dominion and stewardship over the earth, to draw out its resources and create along with Him. And that's why God loves cities. It's an erroneous theology to suggest that cities are sinful. There are those cities that are the cities of men. Cities of sin. Cities of Satan. But cities represent our creative... Imagine a city that was not out of a fallen world. Where we took all the beauty of the things that God created and, and took all that potential and created something beautiful. What the picture of the forever and ever tells us is that in spite of the immense detour that humanity took in that original intent, (laughs) falling into sin, breaking creation, falling apart from God, the miserable result of society that's being created by this, God's plan will be accomplished. And it will be done, and, and we will be a part of that. That's the life that's in front of us. We will be living in the state that God intended. The work that we do now echoes into that future. See? So that's worth keeping our eyes on that, keeping a lens on that state and understanding that right now we are working in such a way that it pictures that, that points to it, that in some way captures it, even though we are longing and waiting for Christ to come, and to bring about this recreation of heaven and earth. And this is the the conflict that we're in right now. And so the question is, how do we let that picture of the forever and ever affect our work? How does our work now have eternal value and purpose? And so what I want to do is to give you a, a little theology here on what we refer to the kingdom of God. All right? Because we both look forward to the future coming of the kingdom of God, but yet in some way we refer to God's kingdom as being here and now. And for a lot of new Christians or people like who are just hearing about it, it, it sounds a bit contradictory. We're waiting for Jesus to come and reign, but yet we talk about the kingdom of God now and doing work in the kingdom of God. Is that contradictory? No, but let me try to explain it to you. I'm going to do it by showing you some charts. Christians are famous for charts about the future. I grew up in, you know, we had big fold-out charts trying to explain the book of Revelation. They kind of folded out like this, and they were confusing. And I kind of pictured God up there holding this chart with Jesus at his right-hand side saying, well, son, I'll send you back when I can figure this thing out. 
I don't mean to throw you up one of those charts, but I want to show you a picture of our life now as it relates to the, the coming kingdom and the presence of the kingdom. This is what the Old Testament view of uh, the coming of the Lord uh, was. They saw the old age, which we think of still, we, we believe in the old age, as that, that result of sin, society experiencing death and the injustice and the darkness and the bigotry and the, the sickness and all those things that are a part of what was broken because of sin. That was referred to as the old age. And then they looked forward to the coming of the Messiah as an end to that old age and the bringing about of a brand new age sort of a, an end and a beginning, and in that new age, death would be done away, and this Messiah would bring peace and justice and lasting for, for all time. Now, what they missed was what the prophets had pointed to was that the Messiah that would come would be a suffering Savior. What this idea that existed leading up to the coming of Jesus in Israel missed was even what was pointed to through their whole sacrificial system, that the Messiah would first come as a lamb, as a Savior. And so then when the Messiah came, we have a fuller picture by Jesus' own teaching, and then, of course, taught more fully in the Old Testament when they saw how the Old Testament was fulfilled. And we come to understand that this is more an image of the old age and its relation to the new age in Christ. The first coming of Jesus was a Savior. He died for the sins of the world. He made it possible through that sacrifice as the true Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the whole world, to enter into this new life with Christ and to become part. And for, and for all of us who have received forgiveness from Jesus Christ, surrendered to His rule and reign in our life as King, right now we become part of this thing called the kingdom of God. In fact, we are given a, a job to do. Paul refers to us right now as ambassadors for Christ which means we're citizens of His kingdom and we're representing His kingdom in a, in a foreign land, in a culture. And what He's doing is capturing that middle area since Christ came. We are at once citizens of the kingdom. Christ pronounced the coming of the kingdom when He began His ministry. But yet He also said, I'm, I'm going to leave and I'm going to come again. And when I do, I'm going to establish my kingdom in full. See? And so we are caught in this state where we are part of the kingdom of God that exists, but yet we're living it out still in this fallen and broken world. The old age is still present as well. And there, our mission is wrapped up in being in this gap period. And there is a time when Jesus will come and the old age will be finally and fully done away with. Now, where are we in that continuum? Well, first of all, this is what the kingdom of God is in the Bible. The kingdom of God is both now and future. Wherever you surrender to Christ as Lord, the kingdom is. Because we're surrendering to His reign. And how we live, our prayer that the Lord gave us, as we've already talked about, represents how we're supposed to live. We're supposed to pray, your kingdom come, 
And then that's defined and explained by your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And I can bring that about in my life by accomplishing God's will. And where I am, the kingdom is being extended. I'm missioning. And my mission as ambassador is to invite others to join that kingdom. So there's a present reality, and yet there will be a future coming in fullness of the kingdom when Jesus returns. This is what he promises. And so in one sense, there is a future forever and ever, but also right now, everything you do is already part of the forever and ever. Right now, you have eternal life. You are living in the forever and ever. Does that make sense? Now, where in the timeline are we? Well, I, I hope we're here. And you are here. I hope we're there. Fact is, I have no idea. And nobody really has any idea. The writers of the New Testament believe that Christ could return at any time in their life. So I suppose it's smart then for us to assume that 2,000 years later. But Jesus even said, of that day and hour when the Son returns, nobody knows. Only the Father knows. Even Jesus in his earthly state didn't know the timeline for when Jesus returns. That's why we're going to put a little question mark there. You are here? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Jesus could come. But here's the thing. That secondary business in Christianity where people tell you that they figured it all out, that they know exactly when Jesus is coming, they're charlatans. Let me tell the audience in the internet what I really think about those people. That's a game we're not supposed to play. We're just supposed to be ready right now and believe He comes. Be prepared. Be ready. Now, there's a passage in the Bible that directly deals with this in terms of how I live right now while I'm waiting because it's easy to get impatient. And it can affect my work. And I can, I can stop thinking about right now living in the kingdom and going about my vocation and my work as part of that kingdom and I can just hunker down and wait for Jesus to come I can adapt that attitude that the world is going to hell in a handbasket church is a is a is a, a, a you know a, a storm a protection area what's the word I'm thinking of a bomb shelter the church is a bomb shelter and we're hunkered down waiting for Jesus to return and for his kingdom to come Oh, how horrible that would be. But that's what would happen if we get so focused on waiting and we get impatient. We stop living right now in the kingdom. So Paul, Peter addresses that in the New Testament. It's 2 Peter chapter 3. It's page 861 in the Pew Bible. Please turn there with me. And we're going to read how he is encouraging people even in his lifetime. And remember, Peter walked with Jesus. Even in his lifetime, they were tired of waiting for Jesus to come. They were tired of working and living in this cursed world. Having problems figuring it out. Start reading in verse 3. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. I want to pause there. That's actually not true. Remember, this is what the scoffers are saying. And what the scoffers are saying is that nothing's changed since the beginning of creation. But we actually know that's not true. 
Nothing has changed since the fall, which is chapter 3. God intended something else. And that's what we're waiting for, is the coming of that back, the return to what God planned, the fulfillment of that, the renewing of it. So it's more fair to say that ever since he left, everything stays as it's been. In other words, we're still in this dark, broken age. That's what they're wrestling with. Things are still dark. Why isn't Jesus coming? Verse 5, But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will surely come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, Same question we're kind of asking today. He goes on, since this will happen, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with His promise, we are counting on and looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. So once again, this whole idea of waiting and when He comes, there'll be restoration. You could read this text as sort of a fearful thing, destruction by fire, right? I I prefer to think of it as a purifying process. Sort of like what happens when you take old beer bottles that still have the labels on them and it's time to recycle them and you throw them into a fire that heats it up so hot that all the paper and all the ink and all the impurities burn away and all that's left is pure, clear glass and you can make brand new bottles out of it. And yes, I just used beer bottles as an illustration in a sermon. It's a new day. (laughs) Coke bottles. There, There you go. Yeah, that's how I think of it. I think of it as God burning away all that sin brought, all the cursed, all the chaff, all all the old stuff, all the mold, all the bacteria, everything that sin brought to this creation, purifying it and leaving a purified brand new heaven and new earth and we're going to be there because we've been purified by the blood of Jesus too. We've been made new. We've been recycled. And we'll be part of that new creation. It's a beautiful thing. And it will come. And then he goes on. He says, so how do you live? How do you go about living your life now rather than getting impatient and giving up and hunkering down or becoming this skeptic? How do you live your life now? Well, he says, be holy and godly. The word holy is set apart. 
And so at least we can at least begin thinking about how our work has an eternal focus by setting ourselves apart in all that we do for God's purposes. That's what holy means. So even in your work, you're set apart for God. One of the most important parts of this whole series is that we want to break down this notion of there being a divide between the sacred and the secular in your life. There is no such thing. You're, we tend to think of the work as what I do out there in the world. That's the, my secular life. And my sacred life is what I do in church or with other Christians or in serving and growing. No such thing. Your entire life is sacred. Everything you do is sacred. And as you keep an eye on the forever and ever, even in your work, set yourself apart for God's purposes. Now, how do we do that? Is, is there... Are, are there some ways of framing our work that will help us do that? Well, certainly you've gotten a lot of it in this series. But what I want to do is go to two terms that the, one of the books we've recommended that you read, and I, I want to recommend it again. It's a book entitled Workship. Workship, excellent book. And in the chapter in that book that deals with work and eternity, the author suggests that it would be helpful to distinguish between two terms. The first term is renewal in our work, and the second term is redemption in our work. So here we go. Seeing your, seeing your work through the lens of renewal and redemption. They are similar, but two different things that are related to the work that Christ is doing today on earth. So the first one, work and renewal. Renewal is really what we've been talking about through most of this series. Entering into our work now through Jesus Christ as God had always intended us to work. Right? Working for His glory, for His purposes. And I believe this is one of the things that we've captured in this series that the church has long neglected and should talk about. That you are working right now in a way that echoes into eternity. Echoes into the forever and ever. What was God's original intent? That we work for His glory and reflect His glory in our work. That we work creatively and beautifully. No matter what work you do, believe it or not, you can do it beautifully. You can bring beauty to it because God creates beautiful things and He made you. And you reflect His image by creating in your work with Him. We can work right now in a way that makes us stewards of the earth. I'm going to tell you right now, the evangelical church has some catching up to do with recognizing our call to be stewards of creation. We have contributed and justified the abuse of creation. Now, I am not saying that we're supposed to leave the earth pristine. God taught us to subdue and utilize the earth. Bridges are our work that reflects God's glory, taking the beautiful things, the, the resources of the earth and turning them into something glorious and useful and beautiful. We are to use the resources of the earth, but we are to do it in a way that the earth is blessed and sustained and thrives. That's part of our work. We are to enter into that right now to do kingdom work. And then, as, as Lou pointed out last week so well, all of our labor has to have with it in mind that we are contributing to the common good, the good of others. All work that God intended. Uh, everything we do has that in mind. And so this is really, uh, in some ways, a very limited summary statement of the series to this point. And now I want to add 
the other aspect of our work now that gives it eternal purpose, and that is working and redemption. Renewal is you and I working in such a way that echoes into the forever and ever, echoes into the eternal work that we will do in the kingdom. Redemption is you and I helping God in the mission of making sure as many people as possible get to live that life. It helps us see all work as part of the greatest work of all that we are all called to of helping mend what sin broke through Jesus. And that certainly has a bigger thing in terms of social justice and so many other aspects of our work. But at the core of it, it's the redemptive work that God wants to do in the lives of people. Now I'm going to go back to 2 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to look at Peter's explanation of why God has delayed the return of His Son Jesus. And it's not so that you and I can just get better and better at working for the kingdom until we get it right and He returns. Right? This is what he says. This is why we are still living in this between period, living out our lives in a way that is kingdom and eternal, but in a cursed world. This is why we're still here. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. But he's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See? That's, what, that's where his heart is. And that's where he wants our heart to be. And so approaching our work, one final motivator is to see all that we do through the lens of God wanting to make sure as many people as possible get to be in that forever and ever that you and I are headed to as His children. And I'm going to tell you, in everything you do, that's the greatest common good that we're called to do. And everything you do should be trumped, should be built on that job. You want, you want a job description for your life right now? Jesus gave it to all of us. Go and make disciples of every nation. See? So how do we take our work, our jobs, and to see them under this call of work and redemption? Well, here's just a, some things to start the conversation in terms of seeing all work as part of the greatest work of mending what sin broke through Jesus. Working in such a way that you're sharing Christ's love. You're the one that is always going to be loving, always respectful, always caring to people in the church. You know why? Because you're an ambassador for Jesus in that place. And you're never off of that job. And that title never falls off of you. Be the one that people can count on for being valued and respected and loved. In the same way you have been unconditionally loved by Christ. Showing, be the one that always shows grace and peace to people around you. Don't be the one that quarrels. There is no such thing as quarreling in the name of Jesus. Can I be clear about that? Yeah. Many of us 
think the right thing to do when we actually open our mouths and talk about Jesus is to try to win an argument with somebody about Jesus. Your greatest apologetic for who Jesus is is the love that you demonstrate people and the grace you show them proportionate to the love and grace you've received. Live that out. That's powerful. That's work that is redemptive. Right? Pray for those you work with. Pray with those you work with. Here's an amazing thing. Did you know that pretty much everybody would let you pray for them if you asked them about a situation in your life? Did you know that? I can't remember a time I've ever been turned down when I offered to pray for somebody. And you're saying, well, yeah, but you're a professional. They expect you to do that. But I'm not talking about on, on the job. I'm talking about on the golf course, in the marketplace, you know, in a doctor's office, at Disneyland, for heaven's sake. People sharing their life and saying, hey, would you mind if I just prayed for that? Let them experience your familiarity with your Heavenly Father as you bring their need before Him. You'd be amazed how many people would let you do that. And then share the good news as God gives you opportunity. Now, here's the thing. Two things about this. One, you are not being paid by your boss to be an evangelist. And you are not being persecuted as a Christian if you're using time that he's paying for you to do something to preach and make make Christians. You're actually dishonoring God by not working as unto Christ and honoring that, that employer. And I get the fact that there are places where proselytizing is, 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 is a problem. But really, really, isn't that mostly an excuse for most of us? And don't we also think that we've got to be Billy Graham in order to talk about Jesus? You don't. All you've got to do is be ready when people see your grace, your love, and your life and ask you, what is it about you? And just say, it's my faith, it's my church, it's the forgiveness I found in Christ, the hope I have in Him. There's isn't one of you that can't point people to Jesus as God gives the opportunity. And here's the other thing. I firmly believe there isn't one of you who will not have the opportunity if you actually live your life and do your work in a redemptive way. And that's why Peter says this in his first epistle. Let's say this together as we wrap up. Say it with me. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. You should memorize that verse. Because it first of all gives you the attitude you need to have as you talk to people. Ron was sharing with me this week about how God's opened up amazing opportunities for him in his work in the city just to talk about Jesus. In the workplace. It's amazing how spiritual people actually are these days. Don't be afraid to show your spirituality as part of that. And, and, and I'm going to tell you something else. If you have never had anybody at your work or whatever your work is, whether it's career or not, if you've never had anybody say to you, what is it about you that you've had an opportunity to explain your hope? Then you're not living out your hope. You're not living out your grace. You're not showing the love of Christ. I honestly believe if you see all work as redemptive work and live your life as though you were working for Christ Himself, I honestly believe hundreds of people will be asking 
this congregation, what is it about you? And you can point them to Christ. And they can be part of our forever and ever. Amen. Yeah. Father, we live, we breathe, we work for you. We want to live, as, as Peter said, holy, godly lives. And we want people to see us in our work, how we go about our work with integrity and respect and honor and excellence and patience and love and grace. As they see us do these things, we want, we want them to see a supernatural reality in us so that they too can come to know You and to be in the forever and ever that You've purposed for us and that You've made possible through Jesus. Lord, we long for that day, but in the meantime, we accept Your call to join You in making all things new. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.